The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to turn to God's Word, and we are in Matthew chapter 3 and 4. If you have a Bible, um, I apologize. We do have the ones out front there, Um, and Matthew's a little bit harder to find. Typically, I'm like, oh, it's right right in the middle over to the side a little bit. The book of Matthew is a little bit more like, uh, well, it's the first book in the New Testament, if you don't know where that is. It is basically, if you go to the back cover of the Bible, and in about 200 pages, Matthew's going to be there. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. This is the very first book in the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 3 and 4, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a couple sections at the end of chapter 3 and then the end of chapter 4, and then we're going to pray and start looking at these chapters together. Matthew chapter 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, He immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then over at the end of chapter 4, And Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem to Judea, from all beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. God, as we look at these chapters here related to who Jesus is, we pray that we would be refreshed and startled by the simplicity of this renewal, this new life that he gives us because of who he is. We pray that we would see a simple picture of who Jesus is for us this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. the younger people in our audience may not exactly remember, uh, but Mr. Rogers was really famous. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know who Mr. Rogers is. Here's a picture of Mr. Rogers with one of his, uh, the guests on his show. Does anybody, just a show of hands, anybody remember Mr. Rogers? Like, I'm just trying to, like, figure out, like, I'm trying to calibrate, like, how do I present him? I'm just saying the rest of you who don't know who he is, you need to find Jesus, because this guy, um, Mr. Rogers, uh, probably, probably one of the most, at least up until recently, one of the most famous uh, television personalities ever in history. And he ran basically the first uh, child program aimed at children um, that was catered to children so that they would not only grow developmentally, but be able to express their feelings, understand how to process life and the world and all that stuff. He was so good at engaging with children. I read this biography this last year um, about him that one of the continual questions that plagued Mr. Rogers' life was, is he genuine? Is this really who he is? Because he was so engaging with children, so compassionate and focused, and gave them so much compassion and attention 
that people were kind of like, is this a show or has this guy got some ulterior motives? Like they just couldn't believe that this was a man who genuinely and legitimately, that his, he really was who he presented to be. Because we all, I think, have learned from our own difficulties in life to expect people who present to be one thing on the outside to be hypocrites on the inside. And Mr. Rogers, here's a famous show of his where this, uh, the individual that he's there with is 10-year-old Jeffrey Erlanger. Um, Jeffrey Erlanger, as you can see, was confined to a wheelchair. And this was back, first of all, not only did TV never present people with disabilities on television, but secondly, um, this was probably one of the first electric wheelchairs. I mean, they're fairly common today, but this was one of the first electric wheelchairs. And so here he is. And you can just kind of look at this and you get a sense of who Mr. Rogers is, if you're not familiar with him, that here he is, he's, crowd, he's not talking as an adult down to a child. He's sitting down with him, engaging him as a peer, engaging Jeffrey about what's it like, if you ever watched the episode, what's it like to have a wheelchair, what, are your, what does it feel like to move the wheelchair around, how does it make you feel, all these sort of things, engaging Jeffrey as though he were um, a, a real person with real feelings, um, even in the midst of his disability, being able to experience life in good health, that sort of stuff. The reason I bring this up, and this is more just for my satisfaction to the story than anything necessarily to the sermon, but 25 years later, when Mr. Rogers was inducted into the TV Hall of Fame, Jeffrey was the one who was, sorry, I always want to cry when I bring this up, Jeffrey was the one that in that introduced him to the induction to the TV Hall of Fame. And what happened in this moment was Jeffrey comes out onto the stage, rolls out, and everybody recognizes him from that episode that we just saw. And Mr. Rogers in the front row jumps out of his seat over the barrier and up to the stage. And this is where he is engaging with Jeffrey. Like, he wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> he was actually supposed to wait his turn and then go up as you normally would be like, when, you know, when I'm called up here, like, okay, yeah, here I am. No, he jumped over because he was so genuinely caring towards Jeffrey. He genuinely loved children. He genuinely wanted to see people flourish and be happy. This question that plagued Mr. Roger his entire life, is he real, was yet again put on display, he's the real deal. It's hard for us to believe that people like Mr. Rogers are actually human. <laughs> like, was he like born without sin? Well, if you read his biography, you'll know that he was a bit of a jerk to adults, but he really liked kids, you know? <laughs> but we can take that down because it's going to keep distracting me. We have learned through our lives that it is hard to experience humanity for what it truly is meant to be. It's hard for us to expect that somebody is legitimately true and human and pure and good because we have all had those experiences where we realize that somebody, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our boss, at the end of the day, it turns out they're hypocrites. They really aren't what we expected them to be. And we can be left with this question, is it possible to know a good person? And is it possible to become fully human like them? As we've been working through our series on all things new, that's the core question that we've been wrestling with. Right, Mr. Rogers, great guy. He can't change you and me. He can inspire us. But we are looking through this series of what the Bible is all about, of how do we become fully human? How do we become renewed? How do we become a fresh experience and realize all the hopes and dreams of what we hoped we could become 
is there anybody that's ever actually been fully human and then can help us become like them? And that's what we come to when we come to Jesus. I know you're going to be surprised by that. <laughs> Here we come to Jesus in our series as we've looked at how God designed us to live, how the world is fully cracked open and broken, and yet in the midst of all of that pain and suffering, Jesus steps in to heal us and make us new. He came to take up all the images of everything that we've talked about up to this point and make us fully human in himself. There's a lot that we could say about introducing who Jesus is. Right? There's a lot that we could say. The, the book out there, Gentle and Lowly, I don't know if you guys remember, I accidentally ordered for free 200 of them, and I'm like hawking them away like pancakes, like, please take them. <laughs> please take a book. I've got like another like 160 of them left I need to get rid of. Please take those. But that book is a great introduction to who Jesus is. What we're going to look at here in chapters 3 and 4 is that we have a few things we want to see about who Jesus is. We have a few specific things about we want to see who, we, who he is and what he's like. I'm not exactly sure what Jesus would have put on his Instagram profile, but I can imagine these sort of things were in range of what he would put. You know, like, I don't know what you have, if you have an Instagram account or TikTok or whatever it is, what your profile says. I can imagine Jesus has a few things that he would want to put on there. But here's the main point we want to look at this morning, and then we're going to kind of look and get like, what would Jesus maybe, what are some categories that he would put on his Instagram profile to help us introduce us to who he is and how he's making us new in himself? Here's the main point. Jesus invites us into a new humanity. That's the basic point of what we're going to see here in Matthew 3 and 4. Jesus invites us into the new experience of what it means to be human. And then we're going to look at through four, four categories is just what would he put on his Instagram profile? He's a king, what his battle plan is, who his friends are, and what's his power. He's a king, he's got a battle, he's got friends, and then what's his power? So we're just going to look at here of all chapter three. Chapter three, if you have been around the Bible a long time, uh, John is the cousin of Jesus, and his introduction to mystery is he is kind of one of those, like, he was, who is it Bear Grylls? Is that the guy? Bear, the guy who's like the extreme, right? He's that guy. John, the apostle, or I'm not the apostle John. John the prophet, he was the original Bear Grylls. He was out there living off locusts. Bro, I'm, I mean, I don't know how hungry you get, but I've never gotten hungry enough to eat bugs. I mean... Maybe that's your thing. Eats bugs, wears camel hair, eats honey straight out of the hive. Like, that's a beekeeper. Like, he's a beekeeper. Like, that's, that's for real. Like, you just got to stick your hand and... He was hardcore. He was out there preaching to people about who Jesus was, or preaching to people about who God was, and he was calling out the, the, the religious leaders of the day. Here at the beginning of Matthew 3, he was, Your brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance... Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe has laid to the root of the trees. Like, he's calling down judgment. For every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's John. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. I will baptize you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here, 
John is not only the original Bear Grylls, but he's the original like fire and brimstone preacher. Like he is coming after them and saying, bro, you guys got to change. You better, you know, turn or burn type stuff. And he is going after them, but he's giving this very stark image of who Jesus is. Jesus is going to come. He's got his winnowing fork in his hand. Like, I, I don't know what that is. I assume that's like, does anybody know what a winning fork is? What's a winning? Yeah, it's like the four prong. Yeah, it's like, like, imagine like Loki showing up, right? Like, my life is all about just imagining where Loki could show up. But Loki with his, you know, saber thing, four prongs showing up. And then what happens right after that? He's coming with judgment, and who shows up? Chapter, th- uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let's just pause right there. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he is this incredibly gentle. He's not forceful, but he's firm. Look, we got to do, we, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness so that God's way of renewing humanity is made clear and plain and fulfilled. This image of him coming with judgment will come, but it comes in a later form. But here he comes on the Jordan, and there's a few things I want to pull up. If you remember, as we have been looking through the Bible on this whole series of God making all things new, we've seen over and over again this image of chaos, water, God bringing wholeness and completion, his new creation up out of the water and saving his people from the waters of judgment. We've been seeing these images over and over again, how God is intimately present with his people in the midst of of judgment and renewal to bring them up out of chaos. And so here we have, let's read Jesus' baptism. You guys kind of, you're here, you have all those kind of images in your mind. Noah on his ark, God's people walking through dry land through, through, through the Exodus. Jesus answered him, so let it be so now. Then he consented, John consented, and Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here we have, in like these four or five verses, this profound image of Jesus embodying the new creation that God is making in him. He comes out of the water, and just like after Noah and the ark, they land on the water, and they wait for the, the, the dove to come. Here the dove is yet again showing up and saying, God is starting something new in Jesus. Not only that, but he's on the edge of, the, of, the, of God's um, the promised land, God's place of you know, his country, whatever it is, you know, what you want to call it, God's promised land. He's on the edge of it, right by the wilderness, which is right where all the forces of darkness are represented. Jesus is right on the edge of all the darkness and God's promised land coming up out of the water saying, God's starting something new and he's doing it in me. And we're going to get down to business and understanding who the depths of what it means to be human is. He's starting something new in Jesus. He's starting something new through him. Jesus is the beginning and the renewal of all things. But not only that, but you notice... What does God say to him when he comes up out of the water? This is one of the more important lines in the Bible. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
You notice, has Jesus done anything up to this point? No. Jesus has not performed any miracles. He's not done anything. He's just been Jesus coming and showing up. He's being baptized to fulfill God's plan to go and renew all things in Jesus. He's just there. He is who he is. He's been baptized. He comes up out of the water, and this voice from heaven declares, this is my son. I'm so pleased with who he is. He's not done anything. You notice that God's posture towards Jesus is similar to what we then experience in Jesus is the gospel message is you do not have to perform anything to earn God's favor. Jesus is God's favor for you. Jesus is God's smile for you. And yet here he is, not only that, but you'll notice that when it says he is his son, yes, we, we kind of would kind of go like major theological categories, like, oh, he's the son of God. Well, no, what God's doing in Jesus is he's referring back to when he calls, for, for example, out of Exodus, I don't know if we have these up there, but in Exodus, Jesus, or God says to his people, this is my son. Like he calls, can we go to the next slide? This is my son to Pharaoh, right? Israel is my son. And then when God makes a promise to David about the Messiah to come, he says, I'm going to have a king who comes from you, and he will be my son forever, right? He will be my son forever. So when Jesus shows up, he's kind of like he's fulfilling a number of things all at one time. When God says he's a son, he's not just God's eternal son, but he is the new people. Of, he's the, the new people of God. He is the new king of God. He is the one to renew all things for God's heart for us. See, when Jesus comes, he is a king unlike anything that we've experienced before. And we have to ask the question, what kind of king is he? Like, is he a good king, lowly king, high, high king, kind of arrogant king? I don't know if you've ever met anybody like, who's of royalty. Like, we don't really have royalty in America. Do we? I mean, I guess Kardashians? I don't know. <laughs> I once had a, my, my wife's family is all from England, and I met Prince Philip. Here, he's recently passed away, but here's Prince Philip, and there's me, the, the doofus on the side there. Um, <laughs> you, see, you can see my chin. My chin always kind of stands out there. But you, one of the things that's interesting about royal, the British royalty is that they can never be photographed side by side with you. Like, they're never your peer. So, like, if you were to have royalty, like Prince Henry or whoever it is, like, they wouldn't stand with you and be like, hey, what's up, bro? Like, you wouldn't do a selfie with them. Like, they have to be photographed doing something. So here he is having a conversation, you know, with us mere plebes of individuals, you know, or just these people. He's just talking with us, right? <laughs> he has to be, they have to be photographed. Let's take that down because it's going to be distracting. But they have to be photographed doing something, Right? And that's like the most famous of oil royalty, is the British royalty. So what kind of king is Jesus? Well, you notice even in his baptism, he doesn't need to be baptized. And yet here, because Jesus doesn't have anything to repent of. And yet here in his, his pronouncement, I am the king, what does he do? He comes down into the very depths of what it means for us to be human. We have to repent. That's a hard, the lowest place that we could possibly be saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry. He comes down into that and says, I don't need to be here, but I want to be here with you. 
He's the kind of king who is gentle and lowly. That's the title of this book. So Matthew 11, here we can put the slides up here. Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my father. That sounds like a king. No one knows the father except the son, and no one knows the, uh, the father except the son, and anyone whom the son has chosen to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here's the part. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, Jesus, when he thinks about what it means to be a king, he thinks, I am gentle. I am the kind of king that's so gentle and lowly that you don't need to be embarrassed when you're with me. Like when I was with Prince Philip, I'm kind of like, I don't know, this guy seems really important. He's like on dollar bills and stuff like that. <laughs> like I'm just me. Jesus comes into our lives full of empathy. What are the areas of your life where you feel embarrassed and ashamed? Is it the way you think about other people? Is it emotions, like you just don't know how to handle your emotions, so you just stuff them down, you're embarrassed about what you feel about life, about who you are, about the things that go on. What are the things that you're ashamed of, things that you've said or done, those types of things? Jesus doesn't flinch when he sees those things in your life, and he leans in to be with you. He's not pushed off by them. He is happy to be in whatever those areas of embarrassment and shame are. He's happy to be in those areas with you. And not only to be in them like a friend, but he is your king. He can make a declaration about those things. Forgiven, mercy, grace, compassion. That's the type of king that can enter into our, our humanity and make us new. So the second thing we're going to pick up here right after this speaking of our, the depths of our humanity, is Jesus and his temptations. We're going to see his battle, verses 3 to 11 of Matthew 4. So Jesus is not only our king, but he's got a battle plan. And here's what we're going to do. We are, we're not going to read through all of these, but I want to note is that basically in each of these experiences of his... Well, let me read through them all. Sorry. You guys cool if we just read through all of them? Aaron's cool if we read through all of them. So, when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When Jesus is interacting with each of these temptation situations, he's reliving parts of the Exodus story. So if you go back and read through the Exodus, the first temptation Jesus faces is he's hungry, right? One of the things that happens 
Anybody who's gone through a sober program or fasted for any amount of time, you know that when you get to the, there's a certain point in that process where you're just kind of like, I feel at the very end of myself. I'm so hungry. I am so yearning for whatever it is that I want, whether it's food or whatever. I am just at the end of myself. There's a reason why even with other religions and other, other process, ways people process the world, fasting is seen as a way of bringing you down to your baseline level of humanity, right? Like we think of all these monks um, in the East who do incredible uh, physical exercises, and a lot of them have to do with fasting. It's because it brings you down to the question of who are you? What motivates you? And that is what Jesus is entering into because that is, at the end of the day, our deepest battle, right? You may not, food may not be your thing, but you will always wrestle with the question, who am I and what do I want? And that's what Jesus is interacting with. So first temptation, he is reliving the Exodus story where people are grumbling against God. God, you just saved us from slavery, 400 years of slavery. We've been pounded on by the Egyptians for 400 years. Thankfully, you saved us, not only miraculously walking us through the desert, but here you brought us out to the desert, and you brought us out here just to die so you could save on the grave, cart, grave costs, right? <laughs> like, that's basically what they're saying. And they are hungry, and Jesus, unlike them, he responds with, from Deuteronomy 6, you shall live by the word of the Lord, right? That is actually a direct quotation from uh, Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6 where Jesus relives their trial. And again, there's another trial they live where they are thirsty. And the second temptation where, where Jesus responds, um, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's again where they're wanting for, for water. Responds with, you shall um, not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third one where God's people are looking back to the Egyptian gods and thinking, you know what? It really wasn't that bad under slavery. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, 13, you shall have no other gods, and you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. See, in the midst of our temptations uh, and our battles, we are faced with this question, who do you want and what's going to drive you? Russell Moore has this to say, the path of temptations is gradual and intelligent and intelligent, not as sudden and, ran and random as it seems. See, what Jesus is facing is this progressive experience that we all face with what's going to satisfy us. Who do we want? What do we want? Nobody wakes up. This is just my, my pastoral observation. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what? I really, really, really want to break the Ten Commandments today. Which one, which one am I going to break? I, you know what? I really think I'm going to steal some stuff. Sounds like a good idea. Nobody wakes up and says that, right? The path of temptations is that we progressively convince ourselves that our experience is unique. There's only one way to solve it, and we've got the best idea of how to solve this. So it may end with you stealing, but you don't wake up in the morning and think, I really need some stuff, so I'm going to steal that TV from church, you know, whatever it is, you know, like... <laughs> If you want the TV, just take it. Um, or talk to Drew because he's in charge of all that stuff, and he wouldn't, make, he wouldn't, he wouldn't like me giving our stuff away. Uh, but the path of temptation is similar to what Jesus experienced. It's long. It's progressive. It's not sudden. Like, we don't just kind of think, how can I break God's commands? 
But that's at the core of who we are because at the end of the day, when we start convincing ourselves, I want what I want, I want it on my own terms, I'm going to figure it out on my own terms, we are becoming our own God. We are determining what's right and wrong for ourselves, and then we act accordingly. When we do, when we do for example, steal, or we're envious of other people, or we lust after other people, or we're angry with other people with sinful anger, it is because we have progressively convinced ourselves, God doesn't care, I've got this problem, I'm going to solve it on my own terms. At the end of the day, Jesus is reliving our experience of feeling temptation and saying, I'm going to live your battle. I understand what it's like to experience temptation, but I'm going to continue to trust that God cares for me. So that when we do face our temptations, we find that Jesus as our new king is filled with compassion for us. We, we recite this together on a regular basis. Hebrews 4, 14, 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, as you yearn for what it means to be human again, to be fully present in this world, to experience what it means to be you, and the fullness of what it means to be you, and enjoy God's creation, we all run into these areas we just mentioned where we are embarrassed and ashamed, and yet in those areas we find that Jesus has faced the temptation, faced the, the sin that we want, faced what it means for us to be us on our worst day, and he's done it without sin, so that when we look to help he is there to give us grace with compassion. So when you think, I cannot stop myself from being envious of other people, they have all these things that I do not have. God has let out on me. He's let me alone. He's forgotten me. He will not give me what I want. We have within Jesus, I mean, you can imagine what it's like to be Jesus, who owns all things. Right? I'm sure Jesus was tempted with the experience of, why do they have those things? And I own all things, and yet here I am, a carpenter, barely making ends meet as a blue-collar guy, or in his ministry, I've got all these religious dudes out after me, and I wrote the whole Bible. He knows what it's like to be denied what you feel like you are owed, and to experience God's smile and his grace and mercy in providing for you. See, we can go down a list of all the ways in which we feel embarrassed or envious or struggle with other people, with this life. It's not fair. How has Jesus experienced what it's like to live, to, to experience life as though it's not fair? What is Jesus' experience of being angry or lusting or feeling like, you know what, I could manipulate the situation to best serve my, my desires? I'm sure Jesus had faced some power dynamics where he could have easily manipulated a conversation to serve what he wanted. And yet he did not choose those sins. So when we face them, we have somebody who understands what it's like to face those dynamics. And when we have given into those things, eager to give us compassion and grace. Which leads us to the fourth, third category we want to see. He has Jesus as our new king. We have his battle that he's facing. And then we just want to see shortly his friends. 
verses 12 to 22 in chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and called, and he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene of renewing all things and bringing God's mercy into this world in a fresh way, he doesn't write a book, get on the preaching circuit, and start going around and selling his books. What he does is he just simply moves to town. Did you pick up that he, he moved to Capernaum? Like, there was somebody who actually, like, he went and lived in Capernaum. Like, I, to me, that has to be, like, the most bizarre real estate deal in all of the history. Who'd you sell that house to? I sold it to Jesus, the Son of God. Who are you selling this house for? Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> Like the real estate agents, it's got to be a crazy experience. Jesus lived in a place. He had friends there. He walked around, and then he went and invited people to specifically follow him. And then being an apostle, like we think of this as like a big term, but really all that meant at the time was just he just said, I want to invest in you in following and knowing God's mercy and renewal in me. That's all it meant. He just said, I want you to be my friends. I want you to be with me in what God's doing. He didn't do it solo. He didn't write a book and send it away. He did it with people. He experienced the life of renewing all things with people and invited them into that, that process of extending God's kingdom. You see, Jesus oriented towards these guys, and the four of them that are mentioned is Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Uh, and I'll just, it's interesting to me. You realize Andrew has one line. He's an apostle, right? We think of like the 12 apostles. I mean, you're talking about like, how do you get your name on the annals of history and remembered for all time? Being an apostle is definitely one of them, right? Andrew has one line in the Bible. Some of the apostles have no lines in the Bible, and they are never, that's all that's remembered about them, their name on a list. And now Peter, we remember Peter because, you know, he put his foot in his mouth on a regular basis, right? There's other ones that we remember for a lot of, for a lot of reasons, but they were friends of Jesus is the most important part of it. They were his friends. And the fascinating thing, N.T. Wright has this little comment about this moment where basically it's as though Jesus steps on to the field. Imagine yourselves now. I realize the Sox are not going on to the World Series. I'm sorry to say. And maybe this is not a great analogy, but imagine Alex Cora stepping onto the field. <laughs> Here are the last couple baseball games, and maybe it felt like this is what happened. Stepping onto the field and like, all right, we got our lineup. And hey, you guys up from the stands, all you guys up in the stands, you guys come down. You're going to be left field. All right, you you got a ball in your hand. You wanted you to be pitcher. 
That seems like a little bit of how the game went. But he starts inviting people from the stands into the game. That's what Jesus does here, right? We all show up and we look at Jesus and think we're going to be spectators to this world of what God is doing. And God's plan for renewing all things takes you from being a spectator to being a participant. You must be involved in what God is doing in order to experience what God is doing. He calls you from being up in the stands of watching what God is doing to being on the field and in, engaged with God's plan. Right? N.T. Wright has this great little phrase. He says, God always wanted humans to be a part of the action, not just spectators. God made humans to reflect his image, his presence, his love, his plans in the world. That's why he himself came into the world as a human being. That's why Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and all the others. They weren't ready. They weren't expecting it. But that's how Jesus worked. And that's how he works to this day. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's why you and I are looking at this passage. See, when we pray for compassion categories on Sunday mornings, we pray through God caring for the refugee in our neighborhoods. We pray for God helping our single parents, not only in our congregation but in our neighborhood. We pray for those in um, addiction and recovery, and we pray for the homeless population in our city. Those are just, by looking at the city around us, those are the four categories of compassionate need. And when we pray about those things, what we shouldn't pray is, God, would you help those people over there? What we should be praying is, God, would you help those people over there, and how can I be a part of helping them? That's the way God lives out making us new. That's the way God's message of renewing us in Jesus is. It's not, there's those problems over there. When we've, God, would you fix those over there? God, I've got my zip code and my neighbors and these problems. With reasonable faith, help me to be involved with caring for my neighbors, right? I'm not saying that you guys need to like, or all of us need to like give all of our time and all of our efforts and just kind of get burned out for Jesus helping everybody. That's not what we're saying. But when God renews us and makes us new and invites us into being a new human, a part of that is getting our skin in the game, and just like Jesus did. So, for example, uh, one way that we can be doing that as we continue to come out of this pandemic dynamic is having people over into our house and inviting people into our lives. So I asked Annie uh, Havisto for a couple quotes. She's been reading this book by uh, Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Highly recommend it. Great book. One of the little lines in this book that she recommended that I read, because she wanted to tell you guys off, not me. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Christian, for Christians, it is a hard sell to experience this truth. Christians love to fellowship with like-minded people. Strangers can be another story. When we come to experiencing what it means to be human, Inviting people that we do not know is a part of expressing and extending this gospel of love to other people, right? We, we've experienced this whole pandemic, like, we, like, want to get in our little huddles, and I get it. We want to be safe with the, with the pandemic, and we want to be safe with exposure and all that stuff, but at some point, we're going to have to re-engage what does it look like to invite people that are not in our little bubble and invite them into the experience of God's love and fellowship in Jesus for them. At some point, it will require us to have to engage that question. Everybody's going to fall in different places on that. That's fine. But we will have to engage with this reality of a part of being the community of faith is 
inviting people to the table of Jesus. And that will often be people who are very different from us, who don't remind us of our family or friends, who don't exactly share the same opinions about anything, but they're looking for Jesus. And people who are looking for Jesus, Jesus calls his friends. We want to be with them. Last thing we're going to look at, you guys cool? We're, we're tracking? Okay. As Jesus invites us into our new humanity, we just want to look at his power real quick. We're going to close out this chapter with verse, or just this section. Matthew 4, 23 through 25, his power. So, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, from Jerusalem to Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And then after this comes the great Sermon on the Mount. This is the crowds that begin to gather around Jesus, the crowds that begin to, to, to follow him because of the power that he showed and exhibited. Right? He heals all diseases, and this is pulling from Isaiah 35 and 31 last week where we talked about how when God shows up, he heals, he sets bones right, he, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. All of these sort of powerful things happen when God shows up. One of the things I want to point out here that is fascinating to see is that suddenly, did you notice this? Um, where is it here? And he healed them of every disease. The, sorry, I should have kept this in my notes. The oppressed, those oppressed by demons. He healed people oppressed by demons. What happens here is for the first time in the entire Bible, people are delivered from demonic activity. This is the first time, if you ever look in the Old Testament, people are never delivered from demons. If you look through all the Bible up to this point, the demonic activity has never been pushed back by God's personal presence. This is the first demonic deliverance, and this is largely just a little bit of some, some kind of details. Uh, in the 400 years leading up to Jesus, it had largely been assumed and kind of continually commented on that Solomon had powers to um, sing songs about demons and that, that Solomon was in some way an exorcist. That's not in the Bible, so we don't have to believe that. But the expectation was that when God's king showed up, he would also exercise demons. And that's what we see here in Jesus, is that he is so powerful that those things that afflict us, the physical realities of our world that are broken, he heals. Those unseen realities of our lives, mental, physical, emotional, he heals those. But then he also comes with the spiritual power to turn over the table on the demons in our lives, this, the, the demonic opposition that we face that seems so kind of weird. Like, how did all that happen? We can't quite put our finger on it, but we know that there's something dark there. Even those things, Jesus turns the tables on. As we consider, what does it mean for us to be like him? Maybe you have hang-ups about yeah, Jesus can make me new and maybe how I do good things. But there's some dark things in my life that Jesus could never overcome. There's some dark things in my life that just will never change. 
as we begin to kind of step into how does Jesus fit into making all things new, he comes with a power that rules over all the universe. Everything in your life, your whacked out emotions, your physical pains, those dark corners that you just can't quite get a handle on or get away from, all of those things, Jesus comes with a power that is enough to renew and change the story. See, when he invites you into being a new human, to being a new you, he takes all the power of sin, all the power of darkness, all the power of death in your life. He takes it on himself, and he destroys their power over you. So that when we start talking about what would it look like for you, just imagine your life this next week to be happy, to be joyful, to be less hard on yourself, to experience a fresh breath of what it means to be you in the week ahead. Jesus enters at every point in that story with compassion, mercy, and power to invite you into being a new you. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.